<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Amy Coney Barrett is going to be officially sworn in. It may have already happened in Washington, D.C. by John Roberts at the Supreme Court. These swearing-ins that they've had at the White House so Donald Trump can get his face in the middle of a photo op with uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and now Amy Coney Barrett are all merely uh, ceremonial. They're not real. It's just, you know, for the photo ops and the media and all that kind of stuff. But now, you know, if not a short time ago, a short time from now, Amy Coney Barrett will be on the court. She will be sworn in and she will be about doing the court's business. And there will be a solid six to three hard right majority on the Supreme Court put into place by a series of illegitimate Republican presidents. You know, in 2000, the Supreme Court put George W. Bush into the White House. They are preparing to use that power, this awesome power that the Supreme Court has taken onto itself, and the awesome power, frankly, that the Constitution conferred on it in the first place, they're preparing to use that power in ways that, frankly, I don't think we've seen in the United States since since pre-1927. And it's the Susan Sarandon thing, you know? She, she was like, you know, people are asleep, and if, if Trump becomes president, well, that'll wake them the hell up, and it sure did, right? It's not the way I would have wanted it to happen. I, you know, I'm not a fan of that line of thinking, but it has woken the hell up a lot of Americans. And when the Supreme Court starts not just striking down Obamacare and and the rest of the Voting Rights Act and maybe even the Civil Rights Act, and God only knows what else they're going to go after, obviously Roe v. Wade, and gutting, you know, further gutting your right to unionize. There have been over 30 cases that the Supreme Court has decided since the 50s, gutting your right to unionize. But when they start striking down Social Security and Medicare, when they start striking down the minimum wage and long-term unemployment insurance, because none of those things are in the Constitution. And this is the whole, you know, kind of shtick and scam that these originalists and textualists, which are, you know, just fancy words they use to say, we know what the Constitution means, and we know what the founders meant, and you don't. And it's a religion that these guys are practicing. It's got a belief system. It's got a priesthood. And it's, just, it's just a religion. And Brett Kavanaugh just signaled that he is more than willing to help Donald Trump get a second term. Now, keep in mind, Donald Trump put him on the court. Brett Kavanaugh was very upset by the hearings where Christine Blasey Ford came forward and accused him of sexual assault. And he promised revenge, you'll recall. In fact, I I believe he did it during during the hearings that he promised revenge. Well, here it is. The Supreme Court has single-handedly decided that corporations should be, you know, should have the rights of persons. This was some time ago, but this this was never put into law by any legislature. It was never signed into law by any president. It was the Supreme Court writing the law. The Supreme Court decided that money is the same thing as speaking. Having money in your pocket or spending money to influence an election is the same thing as speaking out or writing an op-ed. That money is speech. It was never, again, put into law or anything else. I mean, this is just the power that the Supreme Court has. The Supreme Court has gutted the rights of workers. They've devastated environmental protections. They've ripped apart civil rights and voting rights laws. 
And they've made it harder for the average person to hold banks and financial institutions accountable for their ripoffs. They've empowered CEOs and giant corporations and reduced the power of voters, average citizens, and consumers. And now they're getting ready to prepare, you know, preparing to hear cases that would gut abortion rights, that would kill off Obamacare and health care rights more generally, even possibly destroying institutions like Social Security and Medicare. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I believe it was Sheldon Whitehouse. It might have been another senator um, who asked Amy Coney Barrett, is Medicare constitutional, is Social Security constitutional? And rather than simply saying, well, yeah, of course, they've been the law in the United States for over, you know, Social Security 90 years, Medicare 50 years, 60 years. Uh, she didn't say that. She, she said, basically, I'm not going to tell you what I think about that. A uh, watchdog group has accused Amy Coney Barrett of, this is accountable.us is the watchdog group. Kyle Herrig, the president, issued this release, this news release. He said, after a 19-year-old pregnant prison inmate was repeatedly raped by a prison guard, Amy Coney Barrett ruled that the county responsible for the prison could not be held liable because the sexual assaults, the repeated rapes by the guard, fell outside the realm of the guard's official duties. She had sued the county for $6.7 million for the harm inflicted upon her by this guard in this prison where she was an inmate, repeatedly raping her. Amy Coney Barrett said, sorry, you don't get a penny. And the reason why was because nowhere in the manual for that guard's job does it say that part of his job is raping inmates. And therefore, yeah, the prison and the state and everybody else, they have no responsibility for this. No problem. No problem. I mean, the Supreme Court's power is extraordinary, but the reality is that it's also balanced in the Constitution by power given to Congress in Article 3, Section 2, which gives the Congress the right, the power, to regulate the court and to define exceptions to what the court can rule on. And, you know, Congress hasn't used that power in a long, long time, but they can do it. They decide how many people are on the court. They've changed the number of people on the court numerous times, uh, twice in response to, you know, right-wing efforts. Uh, John Adams cutting the size of the court to, to burn Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, the Republicans in the House and Senate cutting the size of the court to burn Andrew Johnson. So Congress can decide how many people are on the Supreme Court as I just said. They can force the court to operate under the Federal Code of Judicial Ethics so that Clarence Thomas and his uh, right-wing buddies can no longer be wined and dined by right-wing billionaires. Congress can pass laws telling the court what cases and what issues they may or may not decide. That's an extraordinary power. Congress can expand the entire federal judiciary, including the court, to dilute the power and impact of Trump's unqualified right-wing judges. And the question now is whether Congress is actually going to do that. Because if they do, if the Democrats seize control of the House and Senate and begin to try to, to constrain this court, you are going to see an explosion that's going to make the Tea Party look small as the right-wing billionaires start pouring money into astroturf organizations, the, the, the long-established ones and the brand-new ones that they're going to create. And you're going to see all these Trump anzies out there, they're, these Trump humpers. They're going to shift, right? They're going to start because they're all getting their information from the right wing billionaires, whether it's being, you know, shoveled to them via right wing billionaire Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook or whether it's you know, however it's getting there. Or whether it's coming through, you know, uh, Charles Koch and, uh, you know, via FreedomWorks or whatever it may be. Shelley Adelson shoveling money out the door. And they are going to raise holy hell. They're going to say, oh, you're packing the courts, and how dare you, and you have no right, and, you know, blah de blah de blah And the Democrats have to look at what Mitch McConnell did. Everything the Republicans have done was legal. It might have been immoral. It might have been huge violations of standard practices and tradition, but it was legal. And all these things that I'm talking about here, the Democrats can do, and they are legal. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So get ready for a really big fight.
Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, before I pick up your calls, just real quickly, some of the other stuff that's going on relating to the Supreme Court. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, you know, Biff Beerbong, has said that he's ready to help Donald Trump become president using a strategy similar to what was used in 2000 to make popular vote loser George W. Bush. He lost the election by half a million votes to make him president. Now, Kavanaugh didn't literally say it in those words. He effectively said that, not literally, but this is what it is. I mean, this is, is it's, in the, it's in his concurrence in this decision that voters in Wisconsin whose ballots are postmarked before, on or before Election Day cannot have their votes counted, that they have to arrive by Election Day. Now, in Pennsylvania... A lower court gave Pennsylvania an extra three days. They said, you know, if your ballot arrives, as long as it's postmarked by Election Day, if it arrives as up to three days later, it can still be counted. Now, that was a four to four split on the Supreme Court, which left the lower court ruling standing. Well, now that we've got Amy Covid Barrett on the Supreme Court, you can expect that to change. So Pennsylvania may well lose that right. And on top of that, you know, Wisconsin just didn't get it. But buried within this, in his concurrence, is a, uh, a bizarre endorsement of Justice Rehnquist's use of the Supreme Court to violate the Tenth Amendment and throw the Florida election to George W. Bush, even as the state was preparing to count the rest of the 170,000 ballots that hadn't been counted yet, the 10,000 ballots in, in Miami-Dade County where you had um, clear voter intent. You had chads that were bent or marked, but they hadn't popped all the way through because the machines were clogged up. And they were uh, most likely mostly gore votes. They never, those never got counted either in Florida. I mean, you know, it's just totally bizarre. And then Justice Kagan, Lagan Kagan said... Uh, this, she's, she's basically taking on Kavanaugh. She says, this court's decision, she's talking about the Wisconsin decision. No, you can't. Even, even if you mailed your ballot in a week before the election, and the postmark clearly says that, if it arrives the day after the election, it won't be counted. And Elena Kagan, this was five to five to three decision, five Republican court members, and we should just start calling, not even calling them appointees. You get five Republicans on the court and three Democrats. Well, now we've got six Republicans and three Democrats, but this was a, you know, yesterday's decision, five to three. And Kagan said in her dissent, quote, this court's decision will disenfranchise large number, in other words, take a vote away from, large numbers of responsible voters in the midst of hazardous pandemic conditions. She said that COVID-19, the, the pandemic has turned in-person voting with its often long lines, touch screens and enclosed booths into a health risk. And then one of the comments that uh, uh, Justice Beerbong made was that if they went along with this lower court ruling and allowed Wisconsin to count votes that arrived after Election Day but were postmarked before Election Day, that that would, quote, flip the election. Because obviously Justice Beerbong knows that the, you know, the, the, most of the mail-in votes are going to be Democratic votes because, you know, the Republicans are all watching Fox News and they don't think that there's anything to worry about with this virus. So he said it would, quote, uh, flip the election. Justice, uh, Justice Kagan writes, and I quote, Justice Kavanaugh alleges that suspicions of impropriety will result if, quote, absentee ballots flow in after Election Day and potentially flip the results of an election. That's her quote from Kavanaugh. And then she goes on to say, but there are no results to flip until all the valid votes are counted. And nothing could be more suspicious or improper than refusing to tally votes once the clock strikes 12 on election night. To suggest otherwise, especially in these fractious times, is a disservice to the electoral process. You think? And then on top of that, Kavanaugh, in his decision, was caught lying He said, uh, other states, such as Vermont, by contrast, have decided not to make changes to their ordinary election rules. Well, it turns out Vermont actually on July 22nd, or on July 2nd, excuse me, actually passed Senate Bill 348, which was titled, An Act Relating to Temporary Elections Procedures in the Year 2020. 
and it instituted a vote by mail system for Vermont. So Kagan is uh, so excuse me. So uh, Kavanaugh is lying in his decision and using you know just twisting logic on its head and saying that if all the votes, all the mail-in votes get counted, it will quote flip the election. I mean, it's just bizarre what these guys are doing. They are getting ready. I'm telling you, they are getting ready to pull off another Bush v. Gore. And the only thing that'll stop them is if this election is so overwhelmingly decided in favor of Joe Biden and Democrats that there's just no possibility that they can squeeze anything out. I mean, throwing 90,000 African-Americans off the ballot in Florida in 2000 helped Jeb Bush get his brother, the governor of Texas, uh, George W. Bush, helped Florida Governor Jeb Bush get his brother within 500 votes of stealing the election because he had taken 90,000 people off the, off the table, voters off the table. But this time, well, we'll see. We will know sometime in the next three weeks. <laughs> in theory, we'll know next week. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The place where despair is not an option. Well, over the course of a few years, Dr. Justin Frank, the psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, professor of psychiatry at George Washington University, a clinical professor of psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science there, who also wrote books about George W. Bush and Barack Obama, you know, the psychological profile of them, and now Donald Trump. Uh, you know, for some time I've known that he had, you know, a deep insight into these people and, and has produced some just absolutely extraordinary and very, very readable books. His most recent Trump on the Couch, of course. But I did not realize that he participated in the 2000 lawsuit that happened before the U.S. Supreme Court that put George W. Bush into the White House, even though he lost the election by a half million votes. I had not realized that Dr. Frank had been a part of that that lawsuit, of course, uh, one that was co-authored by Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and John Roberts when they were just lawyers working for George Bush. But anyhow, he did. He filed a front of the court, an amicus brief with the court. And here he is, Dr. Justin Frank, MD, to tell us all about it. His uh, websites, by the way, or his, uh, excuse me, his Twitter handle, Justin Frank, MD. Dr. Frank, welcome back. Tell us Thank about you, your experience in 2000. Well, I was actually talking with a friend uh, who's I guess pretty well known. He was a fellow father at a, at the school where our kids went, uh, Seth Waxman, who was then Solicitor General, oh, yeah. I think. And um, he said that he had made a bet with some friends of his that the Supreme Court would not even take the case of Bush v. Gore and the Florida Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court would not take the case. And we were together the night they did take the case. We were at a party. I looked at him and I said, I feel that I hear jackboots marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, Munich in 1934. And he said, we talked, and he said, why don't I write an amicus brief? Because the original findings that led to desegregation was in Brown versus Board of Education. There was a psychologist who wrote a very defining brief. So why don't I write as a psychoanalyst about the danger of disenfranchisement and not having your vote count? So that's what led to my doing it. So I did it, sent the brief in, and it was actually tacked on to another brief that was submitted by a much larger group. But it's basically there in the Supreme Court. And I took it out and started looking at it in the last couple of weeks, and I realized that it was a really important uh, document and uh, somewhat predictive in a way that's disturbing to me as in terms of what we're going through in this country right now. And so that's what I did. And I said that in the amicus brief, the danger is, the reason it's important to write this as a psychoanalyst is that if people feel disenfranchised, like in Florida, it activates family trauma. It activates feeling of being a kid and not having a say in development. It activates a sense of insecurity. And one of the things that's important for growth and development and also for our society is for its citizens to feel secure in relation to the government. 
and that the government is on their side and will protect them, and that it's very important for body politic, the political ego, to deal with the fact that the injury from Florida and the hanging chads is going to be transferred through generations if it's not addressed directly. It never was addressed directly, and as you just said in your beginning, that in fact Roberts and uh, Kavanaugh and now Barrett, all on the Supreme Court, were active in the side of Bush of taking that case. I'm just saying that what that leads to is it's important to know that you can vote, and there's a problem that we're having much more now with disenfranchisement and also the attack on voting by mail that Trump has started. But there's also the feeling that even if you do vote, will your vote be counted? So it's important to have confidence in the system. And if you don't have a faith in the system, and I think some people lost faith, uh, the people I know who are most anxious about what's happening now are people who really remember those hanging chads from oh, yeah, 20 yeah. years ago. So in the on this program, I've talked uh, many times about how my sense of things is that, at least my own personal experience, those moments in my life when I have felt genuine rage have always been moments when I felt like I had lost control, that somebody yes. else was, you know, had control over my life, and that produced that kind of rage response. And just, I was telling my listeners yesterday, just in the last three days, Louise and I have had just three now random casual interactions with strangers where the strangers have just blown up, you know? I mean, you know, one was a road rage incident, one was, uh, you know, a person that Louise was telling her how to park her car uh, so that she wouldn't get a ticket, and the woman just went nuts and started screaming at us. It seems to me that the whole country feels like it's lost power and is experiencing rage. What do we do about this, both at the level of the country, obviously, you know, we need to clean this act up so votes actually get counted, but how can we deal with it at the individual level as well so that we're not inflicting that, you know, the, the rage that comes out of those feelings of powerlessness on our loved ones or, or on random strangers? I think we have to take a step back and talk about powerlessness for one minute here, which is that one of the things that's important is the idea of containment, that if you don't feel safe with your aggression, if you don't feel contained, that the government is there to protect you, then when you start feeling powerless, you will also feel powerless to contain yourself. And you won't be able to contain your own rage and your own aggression. Containment and being contained as a child helps a person, the child over time, internalize the capacity to contain uh, his or her own emotions and feelings so you don't necessarily become dominated by them and, and out of control. Right. And I think that's what's happening when we have a government that is attacking containment. And in the amicus brief in 2000, it was about being able to rely on the judiciary if the executive is going to attack containment. But now we can't go to the judiciary, and that's what's different from 2000. They didn't protect us, but this brief was written uh, hoping that they would. And that the system, if you don't believe the system exists to protect you, and that if your vote is failing, your only appeal is to the judiciary, and if that doesn't work, then we're in big trouble. And that's what I think is threatened by uh, what's just happened with Mitch McConnell and jamming this justice. Isn't the flip side of that where Proud Boys see themselves and, you know, all these white supremacist groups, they see their white privilege slipping away and they feel similarly out of control? Yes. In fact, the problem when when there is disenfranchisement, that both people, both groups of people will feel disenfranchised, that the white power groups and that Trump has appealed to the people who felt disenfranchised in 2016. And he talked about, you know, the swamp is ruining them and the coastal elites. I think that both sides feel frightened and paranoid about each other. And it's really dangerous what's happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you, and I, I'm so hopeful that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can pull this I think he can help, but it's gonna be, he's going to have his work cut out for him. You bet. Dr. Justin Frank, his new book, uh, of course, uh, Trump on the Couch. Justin Frank, MD, is his Twitter handle. Thank this you, sir. This is okay. the Tom Hartman Program. Great talking with you, Dr. Frank. Thanks so much for dropping by. 
Kent in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Hey, Kent, what's on your mind? Well, I heard a proposal a while ago, and I didn't even know if it's possible. But basically it was this. Rather than stacking the Supreme Court with more justices, you simply change the rules in as much as it would require a supermajority of seven out of the nine justices to overturn any U.S. law. Is that even possible? That is possible. The uh, Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says that the, the Supreme Court, well, in fact, the entire federal judiciary, but the Supreme Court specifically in this case, shall operate under regulations established by Congress and within the context of exceptions defined by Congress. So Congress could pass a law regulating the Supreme Court and saying that you know, it requires a supermajority, a seven-vote majority, even a six-vote majority to exercise judicial review, to use constitutionality as an excuse to overturn a law or anything like that. I mean, that's, that's actually a very rational middle ground suggestion, Kent, that I wish I had thought about when I was writing my book on the Supreme Court, because that's a brilliant idea. And uh, it's less extreme than packing the court or stacking the court. I, you know, packing the court is a phrase that the Republicans came up with back in 1937 to, to beat up on Franklin Roosevelt. Do you know of any state courts or other courts around the country that operate under rules like that, Kent? No, I just heard this. Uh, I just caught part of the conversation. It was over the radio, I think. Yeah. But he yeah, had, we do it with uh, the death person penalty making cases. the proposal was, uh, I didn't catch his name, but yeah. he said it had several other benefits. For instance, it'd make them, uh, they couldn't cherry pick cases as easily as they do now. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely so, right. No, anyway, I just idea. wanted to know whether it was possible, so thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kent. With death penalty case, in fact, in Oregon, we had a case here. In Oregon, you didn't have to have a unanimous jury to impose the death penalty, and that was challenged. And I, I frankly don't recall the outcome of the challenge. My recollection is, and I could be wrong on this because my memory is vague on this, but my recollection is that the court ruled that it had to be unanimous. There could be dissenters. That's basically, by law, regulating how a jury decides. You could easily, equally, I believe, regulate how a court decides, because a jury is at the core of a court. Charles in Portland. Hey, Charles, what's up? The answers that Kamala was given on, will you pack the court, I thought that was a missed opportunity. Instead of trying to weasel, oh, who knows what we'll do, gosh, trying to play coy, they could have given an answer that made sense. They could have said, you know what, if the court is reflective of the American people, then there's no need to pack it. But if it's reflecting mm. some radical subset of people, then we need to change it. And we would look at that. And it's not changing the rules. That's the way the court is set up. We've had 150 years of nine judges. Maybe we should have been at 12 judges 50 years ago or six judges or whatever an appropriate number is that actually gives the court the balance, the reflecting of the American people. And they could have said, you know, we're not some power-hungry Democrat party that's out to inflict our will, like if we were trying to rush through a Supreme Court justice now. But we are a party that reflects what the American people need, their interests, and we want to make sure that all of our governmental agencies, court legislature and executive reflect that priority. That's an answer that could have excited people that would have been devastating yeah. to Pence and to Trump. I agree, Charles, in the abstract, and by the way, it's the Democratic Party, but, I, I, and yeah, I know exactly. you know that. Yeah. Um, I, we're, we're starting to pick up these ticks, right? It's, it's not a healthy thing. Kamala Harris, number one, she can't go off script from Joe Biden. She's the number two person. This is not the presidential debate, it's the vice presidential debate. So everything has to be in the frame of what would Joe Biden do, what would Donald Trump do? All of the arguments. Every week that goes by, Trump loses by another one or two percent. It's turning into a landslide, an avalanche against not just Trump, but Republicans all over the country. And if she was to say anything that could be misinterpreted, misconstrued, taken out of context, twisted around, or thrown into the ether as, oh my God, about the court, or frankly anything else, it would have disrupted that momentum that the Biden campaign has right now, in which they are just kicking Donald Trump's butt all the way around the block. So I agree completely with your perspective, Charles. And if this was a presidential debate, I think that's how it should have been handled. But right now, her job was to not make news. Her job was to basically hold that space. And I think she did a good job of that. Sean in Winchester, New Hampshire. Hey, Sean, what's up? 
Are there any Democrats or other public figures, those who discuss these things, considering a reduction in the size of the Supreme Court, I would think, therefore, eliminating the two least tenured judges? The reason that doesn't work, that's been done three times. It was done by John Adams in 1801 when he tried to prevent Thomas Jefferson from putting somebody on the court as Adams was in his lame duck session and Jefferson was about to become president. It was done after Lincoln was assassinated. It was done by the Republicans in the House and Senate because Andrew Johnson was now president and Andrew Johnson was a slaveholder and you know was a southerner and was friendly with the South and they didn't want him to be able to, in fact, they took it from 10 down to seven. But the problem is that when you do that, it doesn't force somebody off the court because the one of the very first sentences about the federal judiciary in the Constitution is that basically judges shall serve for life. It, it doesn't say life. It says, you know, judges shall serve during times of good behavior or a phrase similar to that. But essentially, that's what it means. They serve for life. So they could be, well, arguably, they could be moved to, I suppose, you could pass a law that would reduce the size of the Supreme Court and move the most recent appointees back to circuit courts. That would be a possibility. You'd have to expand the circuit courts to accommodate them. You could do all of that with a piece of legislation. Sean, I just reversed my own theory here as I'm thinking it through. A, in answer to your direct question, no, I've not heard any Democrats suggesting that we should reduce the size of the court. But B, you know what you're describing could work. I think, though, that adding people to the court is probably a better way to go. We'll see. We'll see. Pam in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Pam, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? I was just reading your book this weekend or kind of skimming it on the Supreme Court and my Mm. concern about what should be happening. And, you know, I had a couple of thoughts about how to fix the court. You laid out some... Like you talk about court stripping, and the problem with that is that it can be done and then undone when the balance mm. of power shifts. But also adding seats could work that way, too, so it just goes back and forth. Mm. But clearly what's going on today is just I don't feel like the court represents me at all, just not even close. And I don't really feel comfortable with them being able to make decisions with that kind of lineup, with that seriously minority rule. So it's very concerning, right. and I'm I'm also thinking about all the federal judges. The Supreme Court judges are, you can't make the case they're just incompetent, but a lot of those federal judges were just unqualified. You know, passing legislation that says judges have to perform at a certain level could help with that. But it just needs to be restructured. We need to do the term limits, and I think we need to pass some legislation that helps us one thing I can't seem to, to get around, because I think the Constitution says the president puts them up for the Senate to advise and consent, but it would be nice mm-hmm. to have a neutral body putting these people out as just competent judges and not partisan right. puppets. Well, up until the bad. last 20 years, it was always the American Bar Association. The Bush administration started using the Federalist Society recommendations, and Trump made it nothing but. It was all Federalist Society all the time. But your points are all well taken, Pam. The one thing that I would add that's not in my book, and I, I wish I had thought about it or somebody had told me about it while I was writing the book, you know, and I read a lot of stuff when I was doing the research for that book about how to fix the Supreme Court. And nothing, nowhere did I come across this suggestion. But somebody called in with this a couple days ago, and and it was brilliant. Um, He said, why don't we pass a law, since Congress has the power to regulate the court, that Congress can pass a law saying that if the court is going to exercise judicial review, they must have a supermajority. They must have seven out of nine votes, for example, or a percentage, you know, that represents that in the event that we're going to expand the size of the court. And that made a lot of sense because there's an enormous, in fact, the last 80, this is Sheldon Whitehouse was talking about this. There were 85 to four decisions where all five votes were Republican nominees, all four no votes were Democratic nominees. And every single one of those 80 principally hit, principally benefited billionaires and big corporations and principally and or principally screwed average working people or the environment. And these were all decisions that were decided on a constitutional basis. They were using judicial review in every single one of these cases. So why not require a supermajority? I mean, that seems like a good idea, too. So, yeah. Anyhow, Pam, I... Okay. Yeah. 
real quick, just we we did the two thirds before, and the, and that and then the Republicans wouldn't let us get anyone through. So that's the problem. Well, that was um, that was in the Senate. I'm talking about the Supreme Court itself has to have a supermajority. So you can't have a 5-4 decision anymore and have it be a decision. It would have to be 7-9. So what makes Trump supporters Trump supporters? Good question, right? Well, Psychology Today did a deep dive into a whole bunch of literature on this and a number of studies and concluded that there were five characteristics that crossed right across virtually all Trump supporters. Um, and I, go, I do a deep dive on these on our video over at TomHartman.com for the supporters of our program today. But here, here's essentially what it says. Number one, they are authoritarians, by and large authoritarian followers. They want a strong father figure to make them feel safe. Number two, social dominance orientation. They believe in a caste system and they think they should be in the top caste. Number three, prejudice. They, they you know, view people of other races poorly. Number four, intergroup contact. Most of them have never experienced significant contact with people of another race or people you know, d- deeply different than them. And number five, relative deprivation. They feel like they've been screwed. They're not sure why. And Trump tells them, oh, it's those brown people. It's all over at TomHartman.com. Share the Tom Hartman program with your friends. We're available on SiriusXM, Free Speech TV, Pacifica, commercial stations nationwide, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, on the Tom Hartman app, and you can even tell your smart speaker to listen to the Tom Hartman program. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Tom Hartman here with you. How, how do you think this is all going to play out? What should we be doing with regard to our court? The one thing that kind of freaked me out was when Joe Biden the other day said, well, you know, we're going to appoint a commissioner and in six months we'll, uh, we'll talk to them. And I'm like, we don't have six months. We really don't. Otis in Mount Vernon, Indiana. Hey, Otis, what's on your mind? Originally, I think, the way, the way I read the history, there were six Supreme Court justices. There were two each. There were six because there was two each to cover the three circuit courts in the United States at the time. Right. Now we have 12 circuit courts. Shouldn't we have 24 Supreme Court justices? If you follow the logic of the founders and the framers, yes. And, cool. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, I think you could argue that 12 circuit courts is not enough. And that, Probably, yeah. Um, you know, or, or 11 officials plus the D.C. Yeah, the, you know, the various states have grown so much in population that, that uh, you know, like the, you know, the Ninth Circuit goes from Alaska all the way down to California, I believe. That's right. a hell of a lot of people. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and a lot of cases. Yeah, I, I think that the entire federal judiciary needs to be reformed and we need to look at the whole thing. So your point is very well taken, Otis. Thank you very much for it. Mark in Portland. Hey, Mark, what's up? <clears throat> so, Tom, you mentioned before about... Um what Congress could potentially do and uh, in terms of uh, limiting the power of a 6-3 Supreme Court, um, possibly passing laws in Congress that the SCOTUS shall not hear laws infringing the civil rights of LGBTQ or uh, abortion rights or women's rights to choose to do with their own body. And so would that be a somewhat of a Band-Aid in order to protect those communities from, from discrimination by the Supreme Court? Yeah. Yeah, well, it would be, I mean, you know, it could be used in a whole variety of ways. It is opening a Pandora's box. I mean, I'll give you that. When John Roberts suggested this to, to Ronald Reagan back in 1982 or 83 as a way to overturn Roe v. Wade and Brown v. Board without actually amending the Constitution, um, you know, he, he couched that recommendation. Uh, he didn't even make the explicit recommendation. Let me be very clear. He didn't say this is what you guys should do. He said this is what you could do. And he said, you know, on the one hand, you would you would have, you know, strong. I'm, I'm par- entirely paraphrasing here. It's all in my book on the Supreme Court. But he basically said you would have you would be entirely within your legal right to do this. But the political backlash would be massive. And you have to decide whether you're willing to deal with that political backlash. But if you are. Then here is the argument, and here are the dozens of cases throughout the years where the Supreme Court has re- reaffirmed Article Three, Section 2's provision that says that Congress can constrain the court. And uh, he does it chapter and verse. Like I said, I repeated it. It's all recited in, in my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, and, and, and on that video that we just did for Need to Know. Go ahead. Real quick, can I ask you one more question? Um, could Congress pass a law, though, that uh, says that a Supreme Court shall not decide an election regarding the county of ballots and so on by states, by their court system? I mean, that might be something that Congress could potentially do, is limit the uh, power that the Supreme Court could have in terms of, you know, saying we're gonna, you're going to stop the voting vote county in Florida or, or where have you uh, regarding federal elections. The could exceptions clause... Right. In Article 3, Article 3 establishes the federal judiciary. Article 3, Section 2 establishes the Supreme Court and defines, you know, what it does, what powers it has, and how it's controlled. And Article 3, Section 2 says that Congress shall operate under regulations and within exceptions defined by Congress. And, you know, the regulations we've used a lot over the years, changing the budget of the court, setting rules for the court, uh, deciding how many members the court has. You know, Congress has done all those things over and over again. But the exceptions clause of Article 3, Section 2 has not, at least in my lifetime, in a way that I've been able to find. I, I know that in 1981, you know, the first year of the Reagan administration, there were over 40 pieces of legislation introduced into Congress that had court stripping provisions in them that explicitly said, here's what we want to do and the Supreme Court can't do anything about it. And most of them had to do with segregation and abortion, actually. Um, you know, because, again, they were trying to overturn Roe and they were trying to overturn Brown v. Board of Education. 
but none of those became law. I don't know of any that have. So if this were to happen, the Supreme Court would come back and say, wait a minute, you can't do that to us. And then you've got, you know, you've got a fight like you had between Roger Tawney and Abraham Lincoln. Roger Tawney ruled that not only was Dred Scott still a slave, but every black person in America, even in the North, was still subject to slavery. That was the 1856 Dred Scott decision that Roger Tawney was the chief justice for. Um, Abraham Lincoln looked at that decision and said, well, you know, I'll go along with your right to tell Dred Scott he's got to go back into slavery. But I'm not going to go along with your right to say that that applies to everybody else in America. I'm just not going to enforce that part of your decision. And he didn't. And that, you know, thus the Civil War, right? You know, Congress has extraordinary power. The president has extraordinary power. Uh, Lincoln wasn't the first president to do that. Andrew Jackson had done it twice with the Trail of Tears and the the Second National Bank. The Supreme Court had said he couldn't do things, and he went ahead and did them anyway. Said, good luck, guys. So we'll see how it shakes out, Mark. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? In um, Venezuela, the right-wing opposition there won like a supermajority in their legislature. They were basically going to stall and basically make sure that the government doesn't work and that basically everything just shuts down, all social services and everything like that. So during the lame duck session, they passed a law where they created a parallel Congress to the Venezuela legislature there. So my question is, why is it we don't just pass another create another court parallel to the Supreme Court and declare that court null and void because it does not represent the will of the people. It doesn't represent the United States Constitution. As far as I'm concerned, it has lost any legitimacy. To do that, Jared, you'd have to amend the Constitution. I mean, you know, the, 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 the federal judiciary is, uh, well, the Congress is authorized to create a federal judiciary in Article Three of the Constitution. And Congress did that immediately after we became a republic in 1789 and then amended it again, you know, fairly quickly. And I think it was 1796. But that power to create the judiciary is there. We created the judiciary. But I don't think that that gives, in fact, I'm quite sure that does not give Congress the power to dissolve the federal judiciary. They can simply regulate it. Now, they could handicap it like Congress did to Andrew Johnson. When when Lincoln was assassinated and Johnson became president, there were 10 slots on the Supreme Court. One was open. Congress came in and said, we're not going to let this slaveholding fool put anybody on the Supreme Court. And they passed a law reducing the size of the court down to seven. Now, there were still nine guys on it at the time. And so, you know, nobody got kicked off. But Andrew Johnson, for the three years or so that he was president, uh, did not have an opportunity to put somebody on. So, but that, that's about as close as they can get, Jared, as far as I know. Well, I mean, they have to do something. I mean, this court is yep. inherently... Expand the size of the court. Um, and pass a law that says that if they're going to use if they're going to use judicial review, if they're going to make a decision based on their interpretation of the Constitution, they have to have a supermajority. One way or the other. I mean, this is a sword that cuts both ways, or a knife or whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, but uh, Jared, thanks for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Daryl in Denville, New Jersey. Hey, Daryl, what's up? You're listening to Sheldon Whitehouse's presentation about these groups, many of them that were flagged during Lois Lerner's tenure at the IRS, which is probably why they hated her so much. But yep. listen to him describe that and the way that the Koch brothers and this Bradley Foundation and Donors Trust are basically controlling the entire country. These 300 judges on the federal bench, they're all bought and paid for. And White House, he made that clear. That leads me to think, though, Tom, is it's more than just the issue of a woman's right to choose or gay marriage. It's really whether we're going to even have a constitutional democracy. I mean... The real agenda here, Daryl, and this is what Sheldon Whitehouse was saying, is the real agenda is cementing corporate power and billionaire power in America. And the Republican Party, this is the core of their agenda and has been since 1980. And they bring along white people who are racists and men who are misogynists. They bring along these other groups in order to get enough people to get elected. But their real agenda is cementing the economic and political power of giant corporations and the billionaires that those corporations create, period, full stop. Yeah, we have got to have, there has to be some institutionalists on that Supreme Court. I mean, otherwise, the court is no longer legitimate. I mean, even people who might agree with Amy Comey Barrett have to recognize how she got there and what this will mean for the court going forward. And they have to be patriots and think about what this really means. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath, Daryl. You know, I am with you that court is badly corrupted, and this is an example of it, but uh, not holding my breath. It's incredible. I mean, I I guarantee you, as more stuff comes out, we're going to be seeing more and more of the just casual cruelty of conservatives like Amy Coney Barrett. It's just, it's epidemic. This is pretty amazing. Brett Kavanaugh caught lying in a surprise. I mean, this is how sloppy these guys are. And this highlights the point in my interview with Lila Connors that's over at Need to Know K2N or whatever it is. It's, uh, I tweeted it a couple days ago, you can, if you can find it on my Twitter. You know, I pointed out that the Supreme Court can quote Mickey Mouse if they want. They could say, we have decided that, uh, you know, since Mickey Mouse said so-and-so, that we're going to go with so-and-so. You know, as a doctrine or as a policy or as a theory. And the Supreme Court has just been like, well, in the case of Brett Kavanaugh here, just literally making stuff up, pulling it out of his backside and saying, 
This is the reason voters in Pennsylvania can't have their vote counted, even if they were cast, even if they were mailed before the election day. This is the reason why. If Louis DeJoy slows down their mail enough, their votes won't be counted at all. It was Brett Kavanaugh, right? And one of the things that I think is particularly concerning, back to this issue of the Supreme Court, is number one, Leonard Leo's organization and the $80 million we can't trace that was used to put Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Cody and Barrett on the court, number one. Number two, Neil Gorsuch got on the court illegitimately because Mitch McConnell held Merrick Garland's seat, refused to even talk to Merrick Garland and held that seat open for a, a year. Brett Kavanaugh is, in my opinion, illegitimate because I continue to believe, and I went to Snopes this morning to see if this had been debunked, and no, it has not been debunked. It just hasn't been proven that Justin Kennedy, the son of Anthony Kennedy of the Supreme Court Justice, was Donald Trump's banker. He shoveled a billion dollars to Donald Trump when he worked at Deutsche Bank. This was back in, you know, pre-2009 and may well have been involved in some of, these, uh, some of these crimes that Deutsche Bank has been accused of, and in some cases convicted of, of operating as a front group for oligarchs from the former Soviet republics and from Russia, taking this money from these, I mean, Deutsche Bank has paid fines on this. They've, they've confessed to their guilt on this. Loaning money to American businesses or other businesses around the world and having that money backstopped by foreign oligarchs. We don't know if Donald Trump's loans fit that profile yet because the information has just never been public. But Justin Kennedy, the son of Anthony Kennedy of the Supreme Court Justice, was up to his eyeballs in business dealings with Donald Trump for a decade. And then all of a sudden, Trump has a ceremony at the White House. He sees Anthony Kennedy. He says, say hi to your boy for me. Shortly thereafter, Kennedy is like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to give you an opportunity to appoint a replacement for me. And that was Brett Kavanaugh. And then, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies just before the election and says, my fervent hope, my last wish, my dying wish is that my replacement be picked by the next president, whether it's Trump or Biden or whoever it may be, that the next president picks my, and, and Trump, of course, and, and Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, he said, we don't give a damn about her last wish. She's dead. And, you know, in a purely legal sense, they're absolutely right. But what the court has been doing is absolutely bizarre. This, the so-called shadow docket, I, w- I want to point you to an article in the New York Times by Adam Liptak, and the headline is, Missing from Supreme Court's Election Cases, Reasons for Its Rulings. The Supreme Court has made it harder to vote during a pandemic in Alabama, South Carolina, Texas, Florida, and now Wisconsin. And in each one of these cases, they did it with the decision that included no justification. They simply said, yep, we're going to make it harder to vote in these states, one after another. And as Harvard Law professor uh, Nicholas Stephanopoulos points out, if courts don't have to defend their decisions, then those decisions are just acts of will, of power. They're not even pretending to be legal decisions. And I think Judge Frank Esterbrook laid this out back in 2000. He said, the political branches of government claim legitimacy by election. In other words, you're a member of Congress because you were elected. But judges claim their legitimacy by reason. Any step that withdraws an element of the judicial process from public view makes the ensuing decision look more like fiat. In other words, hey, I'm just doing this because I can, which requires compelling justification. In the last term, the Supreme Court only decided 53 so-called merit cases, cases where there were arguments in front of them. And they decided a whole bunch of other cases where they just didn't even just said, hey, this is our decision. We're offering no justification, no rationalization, no explanation, no principles that we're trying to uphold, nothing. We're just making this decision. Screw you. That's basically what the court has been saying. And this is something that, you know, just has never happened before. It has happened before rarely, but not like this. And people are starting to scratch their head and go, what the hell is going on with the Supreme Court? Again, this piece by Adam Liptak in the New York Times, really worth reading. Has the court turned itself into an illegitimate agency of government? 
It's increasingly looking that way to me. What about you? Stephanie in Orange Beach, Alabama. It says here you disagree with me, Stephanie, so you go right to the front of the line. What's up? Well, I want to know that if the Democrats or progressives feel like it's okay to pack the court, then if after November 3rd, President Trump wins re-election and the Republicans hold the Senate, then do you also feel like it's okay for the Republicans to go ahead and preemptively pack the court with with uh, conservative judges? Since the Democrats have already, that's their plan if they win. So if the Republicans win, should they go ahead and preemptively do that just to make it harder for the Democrats down the road? Do you think that's right? Well, I think they already have, Stephanie. Mitch McConnell held Mayor Garland's uh, nomination for 344 days and, no, and then gave that, that seat to Neil Gorsuch. Do... And then Anthony Kennedy's son got tied up with Donald Trump in this huge scandal. Anthony Kennedy's son was the head of the commercial banking for Deutsche Bank, and he was the guy who signed off on $1 billion in loans to Donald Trump, $300 million of which Donald Trump defaulted on. His son apparently had a conversation with Anthony Kennedy, who, in great health, resigned from the Supreme Court to make space for uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And then now we've got Amy Coney Barrett. And frankly, I'm not a big fan of we should wait until the election. I think that what the Republicans are doing right now with Barrett is well, they're well within their rights to do it. I think that the Democrats, instead of saying you shouldn't do this this close to an election, which is using Mitch McConnell's lie from four years ago, they should be saying you stole Garland's seat we're going to steal Barrett's seat by blocking you. But the fact of the matter is they don't have the power to do that. Um, but, but I, you know, Stephanie, they preempted, and, and not only that, the last two years of the Obama administration, over 100 federal judgeships came open, and Mitch McConnell refused to fill a single one. And, you know, Donald Trump was on TV the other day marveling. You know, I had 246 uh, uh, federal judges my first three years. Nobody's ever had that many. Well, nobody's ever had that many because in the history of the entire 240-year history of the United States Senate, no Senate majority leader has ever blocked a sitting president from having any of his judicial appointees considered for two full years, which is what McConnell did to Obama. So, I, you know, I think it's pretty egregious, Stephanie. I think you have a fair point, but I will say that everything Mitch McConnell did was within the bounds of the law. He didn't do anything that he didn't have the authority to do. And that is the way our government is set up. It's the way it works. He used the powers that were given to him by the people who elected him and by the Constitution. And so you can say he didn't fight fair, but, you know, he used the tools that were given to him. Then if the Democrats take the Senate and the White House, they will be within the law and within their right to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court, right? You, you'll grant that point, I'm Certainly, assuming. certainly. Just like the Republicans would be if they hold the House and the, if they hold the Senate and the presidency. They yeah. could expand okay. it to 15 well, I... and, and put all, you know what I mean? Is that, does that sound yeah. like a good idea? I mean. Well, actually, I think it is a good idea whether it's done by Republicans or Democrats. Because the court, you know, the court used to be the final court of appeals. They get about 10,000 referrals a year. And last year, I think they heard 186 cases. And they decided most of those on constitutional grounds. And so as a result, the final court of appeals is not available to most Americans any longer. So if they were to expand it to 15 or even 13 and do it like they do with the, with the appeals courts, where you can have a small panel of three people to hear the case, or you can have a larger panel or whatever, and you can process a lot more cases, I think that'd be a good thing. And I think we need to expand our federal courts as well, right across the board, because, you know, they're stuck where they were in 1950 when there were literally half as many people in the United States as there are now, maybe slightly right. more than half. But, uh, you know, our population has pretty much doubled in my lifetime. Yes. And certainly the planet's population has. But I, I'm pretty sure the United States has. So, I, you know, I think that we should grow with the times. So, agree, Stephanie, are we in agreement here? Court, I don't know if, if one person, if one side packs the court, the next time around, the other side will do it again, and so on and so forth, then we'll end up with a thousand Supreme Court justices. And I don't think that's a good idea. Well, yes and no, because if you, you know, like when Andrew Johnson became president, when Lincoln was assassinated, Congress met at that point in time, Lincoln had taken the court from nine up until 10. He added a 10th justice because he wanted an anti-slavery vote. And they reduced it down to seven. So Andrew Johnson couldn't put anybody on. But that didn't kick anybody off. 
So, you know, it's, it's a little tougher to do it kind of on the back end like that. But anyhow, Stephanie, thank you for the call. And thanks for a civil conversation. I appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Don't forget, <laughs> democracy is not a spectator sport. No matter who you're voting for, get out there and vote. Well, especially if you're a Democrat. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I am all in favor of every informed voter in America, every informed, every citizen in America, informed or not, being able to vote for election without impediment. So anyhow, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Have You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.